you're never too old to learn things and you have to be open to learning I think and you occasionally make a wrong turn you do the wrong thing and it's really important that you fess up to that straight away and openly to, to everybody. You don't try and hide it. You've got to front up to it, say that's what's happened and change. Otherwise, you don't get trust. And trust is one of the most important things, I think. If you haven't got trust, you've got no hope. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome David Fries, CEO of BISA, the Building Engineering Services Association. David describes how they've made their strategy more purposeful, as well as outlining a vision of how construction could become faster, safer, greener, and less disruptive. He also provides some great advice about an unusual way to develop your own leadership skills. David, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Just to kind of get us into it, I wonder if you could say a bit about yourself and about the Building Engineering Services Association, BISA. Great. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, Bowden. So my name is David Fraser. I'm the Group Chief Executive of BISA, which is the Building Engineering Services Association. I started my career in the Royal Navy at the age of 18, ended up in submarines and nuclear submarines at the end, and then joined the family company, which was a mechanical contractor. Uh, it's all plumbing, really. The only thing about a nuclear submarine has got a big kettle on the back and generates steam, but otherwise, you know, water in pipework and ventilation and that sort of thing. Uh, I did that for about 25 years as a contractor, and then I went into trade association management, which started off with an interiors and fit-out association. We grew that, merged it with another, um, and I was doing consultancy for BISA on sustainability. About five years ago, I was asked to join as chief executive, uh, so I've been here five years which is very helpful to me because I have a great deal of empathy for our members having been a contractor. And BISA represents mechanical and electrical installers in the UK. We have about 800 members. They tend to be the larger contractors who work in commercial buildings like hospital schools, offices, that sort of thing. 70% of our members turn over more than 3 million. So they are the, the larger companies, as I said. Companies who are involved in design, uh, installation and maintenance of uh, mechanical and electrical services. So the bits that make the building work, the built environment work, heating, ventilating, air conditioning, that sort of okay. thing. Okay, okay, that's that's what mechanical and electrical systems are, heating, ventilation, okay. If you think about the heart and lungs of a building, mm -hmm. and, you know, who knew ventilation was important before the pandemic? But now we all know it's very important. So our members tend to be the larger companies, so... About 70% of our members turn over more than 3 million, so they're, they're quite substantial companies. And just to get a sense of the size, I'm sure there's a paid staff. How many people make up the team? I think we're about 150 at the moment, so we have a number of companies, yeah. Fairly big for a trade association. Fairly large. Been around over well, nearly 120 years. So we you know, inevitably you grow bits. We have a certification company. We have an academy. 
We have a software as a service company called SFG20. We have our membership services department that offers support and advice from commercial and legal through to technical. Yeah, and for example, we run a thing called REFCOM, which is the uh, the FGAS register, which is so successful in helping to preserve the ozone layer. We have 7,500 members in that. Refrigeration and air conditioning companies, and it's about, it's well into the high 80% of the market. Uh, so it's quite diverse. You talked about 800 members. Are they all companies? Companies, yeah. And then you also do certification. So that's for companies or is that for individuals? It's a bit of both. So you, you now have to evidence your competence and compliance at a company level. We run a company called the Competent Person Scheme, which ironically is about the company is the company to do that. And then we have skill card, which is about the individual. Uh, so it's a bit of both. So we have about 55,000 skill card holders, people like pipe fitters and professional managers in the industry to evidence their qualifications. Sounds like you've got to deal with a very disparate sort of set of audiences, if I could put it that way. Yes and no, they are disparate, but actually they are linked by being part of the building engineering services industry. So it will have some link to that. Right. And you said you've been around for 120 years. Has it changed significantly over the course of those 120 years, or has it sort of been pretty much always about building services, always about companies, always about... Yes, it is. It has always been. It was called the Heating and Ventilating Contractors Association. Ah, okay. And we, we rebranded as Beza quite a few years ago because a significant number of our members do mechanical and electrical. So the, the two have kind of come together in that way. But essentially, there's still people who put pipe work into buildings to either do heating or cooling or hot and cold water services. And you said you sort of got involved with them through consulting to them around sustainability. I'm sure that's become a huge factor, but has it changed what people do on the ground or is it still all just plumbing? Now, it has changed. It is all plumbing in the end because you you know, you know can't get away from if you open a tap, water needs to come out or there are only certain ways you can heat a building. But companies are more sustainable, more aware of their requirements under net zero. That's one of the things we are trying to push because there was a climate change committee report out this week saying we're not going to hit our targets the way we're going. So we're not as far down the road on the journey as we should be. And part of that is the, the beginning of projects, people can want to do all sorts of things. They want an exemplar building. They want it to be as close to net zero as possible. But then you know, reality hits through the budget and things get substituted out, changed, and you don't quite get to where your ambition started. That's interesting. So just uh, maybe a bit of a tangent, but one of the things I'm hearing it's an insight that the minute I've heard it, it made sense, but I never thought of it that way, is that one of the big, perhaps unrecognized obstacles for us getting to net zero is inadequacies around project planning. Yes, but there are inadequacies around project planning because we're just dealing with construction. So it's a hurry-scurry industry. A lot of that is driven by how the finance works. And that you basically you get paid for on-site work. So it pushes people down the route of starting projects before they are ready to be built. So a question I ask at 
seminarizing it, what percentage of the building do you think has been designed before we start building? And it's very low. It generally can only be about 20%, and we're already coming out of the ground. And at that point, you are already into build and design, not design and build. And therefore, if you want to use all the tools around digitization, such as building information modeling and all of those, so you build a digital model or it could be a digital twin, you have to design it before you start to build it. Otherwise, you just flip straight into build and design, which is very inefficient, very poor in terms of quality and productivity, and we're never going to get to those targets while we're building that way. But it's the way that the industry is set up. And part of that is that yeah, the client isn't always after a building. We're under the misapprehension they are. They actually want a return on investment. And a return on investment requires on time, on budget, and on specification is kind of optional because there isn't really any enforcement. And kind of that speaks to how do you get the Grenfell when it, you know, it's on time, on budget. Specification, pretty optional. As long as it looks like the thing you put in for planning, by and large, you're okay. That's a really interesting and difficult, I suspect, for you and some of your members to grapple with, because at some level, it's sort of outside their control, but... Oh, it is totally. So much as part of the issue about contracting is so much is outside of your control. So if the overall bill program becomes late, and most do, then your costs go up. Regardless, your people are working just as hard, you're just doing it in more time. So your costs are going up to. One of the things I want to make sure we get into is questions of purpose and strategy and particularly focus on the how. So what would you say the purpose of BISA is? And then how did you go about developing that? So it's to inspire a better building engineering services industry for a safe, sustainable and efficient future. So it's about a better industry. There's purpose to that. Yeah. Why the word inspire? It's dynamic. In fact, we're doing the strategy review at the moment, and we had actually yesterday a long discussion about, should it be inspire? Should it be drive? Should it be build? It's inspire at the moment. That may change. We're consulting with our colleagues in various teams, and then we're consulting with our members who are effectively our shareholders, and then talking to people outside the industry to see what people understand. The fact that you're in building engineering services you have to explain that every time because people do not know. They don't. Most of the things we do are hidden. And if, as a building services engineer, you succeed, people are totally unaware of what you've done. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're not in the dark. They don't feel anything, can't hear anything, can't smell anything. And then you've done your job. That's not a great industry to be in, is it, on the whole? Because, you know, they value that £350,000 marble reception desk because it's tangible. They can see it. Something that you only value when it doesn't work is not the thing that is easy to sell at the beginning. Our best customers always come from people who have experienced a bad thing. People like hotel owners who have to shut their hotel because they've run out of water, for example. You only do that once and understand the value of this. But of course, most clients don't understand the value because you have to imagine that thing as opposed to something that's tangible. Mm. You said you're in the midst of a strategy review, and it sounds like questions of the purpose. I assume not just the wording, but maybe even, is our purpose big enough? Are we pointed in the right direction? 
fits into that. If you can, talk me through the the way you're going at this strategy review. When did it start? You sort of talked about some of the people who are involved, but how do they get involved? If I saw a video of it, what would I be seeing? Um, well, we started off internally to simply ask the question, what are we about? If bees weren't there, what would happen? Or if we were inventing it now, what is the thing we're about? And we started off with the discussion of that. Is it, do we represent members or do we represent the industry? And the danger of only representing members is that you end up being sort of the horsewhip manufacturers of Kansas. You produce fantastic horsewhips, but everybody's moved into cars. So you missed the point. So the reason we went for industry was simply that if you have a better industry, which has member companies who are competent and compliant and profitable, that means better things happen. And the way the industry operates shifts. So unless you shift with it, you become very marginalized and you have no influence over what they do, which is design and build mechanical and electrical services. So we established it within ourselves. And I then said, actually, I'll write down what I think that means. And then we pitched it back to colleagues and we talked about it. We took it to marketing and they tidied it up a bit. And then we went to our shareholders, to our council members and uh, members generally and said, does this sound right to you? Because it's quite an important thing you know, to say, actually, our purpose is not about the members, it's about the industry. But they accepted that that is a good premise. That's a good concept. And now we're continuing to refine that to move back. But the general core of we're about the industry and a better industry, that's what our purpose is and is going to remain. When did you sort of start this? When did you write what you thought it was down on a piece of paper and gave it over to marketing to comms it up? This was probably a couple of months ago. I mean, I think we'd had that was our purpose before, but we hadn't really declared that in this way. So our previous strategy We'd centred around three pillars, around technical, being unapologetically technical. It's difficult skills to meet the technical requirement and support. It's a lonely business running a business. And we'd not really enunciated or verbalised what's our purpose. But it was the same purpose. We just hadn't said it. <laughs> and now we're saying it. So it's more of a purposeful strategy, I think, is how you probably term it. And so you've been chief exec for a while. What led you a few months ago to decide this is something we need to do now? Well, we do this fairly regularly. In the five years I've been here, we set up an initial strategy and then we did a pivot on the strategy. And then we did a shimmy to the pivot later on just to change it. But, but after five years, it felt like the industry was changing and, and it is and I also woke up to, I think, what is a threat that I hadn't perceived before, and that is that the digitization of the industry doesn't impact our members as I thought it would, because at the end of the day, they still have to fit pipe, fit air conditioning systems. As well. Actually, the people who service the industry are more at risk, and that's us, because we're not providing pipe and fittings. We are services, and that is easier to replicate and Private equity is flowing into the industry, driven by the Building Safety Act, which is making certification services more attractive. It's making things around net zero and all of those services, very much like a trade association, are coming in. So we need to adapt and adapt fast to that changing environment or will be passed by, overtaken and become irrelevant. 
So that's what's driving it. David, if I understand what you're saying, overtaken by businesses, for-profit businesses. Yes, for-profit businesses. That don't see themselves as a trade association. They see themselves as providers of certification or training. or Yes, exactly that. Okay. How much of your revenue surplus, however you want to look at it, how much of that comes from, you know, membership paying subs and how much of that comes from the certification and all that other stuff? Um, about 20% actually comes from subscription income. The rest comes from commercial activities. We're not for profit. So all of the things that we make from that, we put back into the industry. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you want an apprenticeship qualification, nobody's going to fund that. So you have to self-fund it. So we spend hundreds of thousands every year developing qualifications as a service to the industry, which those private companies who are providing services will not do because there's nothing in it, particularly if you're looking at areas such as ventilation, which we've established is really important, and not just in terms of pandemics, but if you want to build HS2, you need to ventilate the tunnels. If you want to build Hinkley, there's a lot of ventilation. You know, so these are core requirements for the UK PLC. But the number of apprentices every year is very low because it's not a massive labour-intensive industry in that sense. So who else would do this if we didn't do it? Hence, that's the purpose of making a better industry. Why is that important even? Well, I think you'd establish it. You would struggle to build Hinkley without it. And those things, but there are other reasons as well. I think what I'm hearing is if you lost, you know, a third, a, a meaningful chunk of that commercial revenue, you'd really have a problem. I can see why that's front and center for the strategy. Yeah, we would have a problem. We wouldn't be able to put the stuff back into the industry if we did. We're also facing the Amazon challenge, as I describe it to our colleagues, and and that is you've got to do everything faster, better, cheaper every year. And that's just a norm. And, and the levels of service and standards has to do that. And that means you need to reflect that and change to adapt to provide that. Um, what is the bigger implication of a better industry? I think it's really quite simple. 90% of us spend 90% of our time in a building. And the building services are the heart and lungs of those buildings. They're the thing that make you able to, to live in them. So if it's a school, it's the thing that prevents CO2 rising in the afternoon so you don't lose concentration and become drowsy. It's making sure that hospitals are clean and the air is clean and the water's clean and not full of legionnaire. It's all of those types of things. Or, or simply, if you're a worker, you're not aware of your atmosphere, you're able to work because you're not hot or cold or whatever. So if 90% of us spend 90% of our time in a building, then the social value of having buildings that work is massive to us. Not just physical health. And in the days when a billion pounds was a lot of money, we spent in the UK 1.3 billion a year on the consequences of ill health through bad buildings. My bet is it's far higher than that now. But also our mental well-being. If you're in a nice space that's well ventilated and clean and light and feels good, you feel better. Your, your well-being, your mental health is there. And then on top of that, nearly half the carbon emissions in the country come from the built environment. So if you're doing it in an energy efficient and a carbon efficient way, you're helping to mitigate the climate crisis. So although you've never heard of building engineering services, they're really, really important 
to your life and to the UK, and they should work, and we should demand that they work. David, one of the things that I hear in what you're saying, and it's a topic that I'm increasingly interested in, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about you know the way buildings get built and what people who are building them are looking for. And there's a bigger interrelated systemic problem that just isn't getting addressed. And I'm not looking to you to say, and here's the systemic solution, but it does seem to me that it's just a pretty pervasive type of problem. I do have a systemic solution to it. Excellent. The problem is that if you're only interested in a return on investment, you're not interested in the building. So therefore, why are you interested in the people that work in the building or take over the building or come as a tenant of the building? You have no real interest in that in the same way. And as a consequence, we install products. And a building is a product itself. It's an integrated holistic system that must work. So basically, in our world, you're not heating and cooling simultaneously in the same room, which happens because people have installed products that aren't integrated. And therefore, to overcome that, what you need to do is actually design it before you start building it, which we've discussed already. You assemble the building rather than construct it. And at the end of that whole thing, you check that the thing that you put in for planning is the thing that you actually built, not a facsimile of it. Let me make sure I've kind of got what you said, because it's one of those simple, amazingly revolutionary, in some world, maybe not ours, but in some world, that could happen. What I hear you saying is sort of before somebody gets permission to build a building, they have to actually electronically file the plans. Says, this is what we're going to build. By the way, this is how it's going to perform. Then they build it. There must be some variation process, but there'd have to be something in the system that makes that unlikely to happen, difficult, expensive if you want to change it. So try and get it right first. Yes, there's actually a whole thing called the Get It Right Initiative because it's so much easier if you build it right first time, you don't have as many defects. But yeah, that's essentially it. And actually, if the Building Safety Act delivers what it's supposed to do, that's not far away from how we will have to start to build. So there is hope. What that might mean is that in the world you're talking about, people who show up and it'll all get built an awful lot quicker with a lot less disruption to traffic and safety. And Well, you make a very good point. Yeah. It's safer. It's, it's easier. It's less disruption. We're, we're a very disruptive industry and our projects overrun quite a lot. That disruption goes on longer. You end up having a construction project done to you if you're a neighbor. That's not great. But yeah, it does have all of those benefits. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, as you've been going down this road, it sounds like you've been working on a purposeful strategy for a while. What surprised you along the way? In our own team, what surprised me was the desire to work in a more collaborative way. The pandemic actually has been interesting. Whilst we were in lockdown, everybody got closer and tighter and communications improved. Everything improved. And our members saw the value of membership because of the way we responded, because it's a very lonely business running a business. When we finished that and we moved out and people were still working from home largely and we were kind of doing hybrid working, they became more siloed because they became really tight teams instead of those water cooler moments where you meet your colleague in quite the same way. So starting this process is, has meant we've kind of had to bring people together and we've done it physically 
So they're in the room, so they can actually see people in a different way. And the desire to communicate, network and to share is evident. And that's a positive thing. And, and also, it's the only way you can really explain the rationale. We're not in crisis. We're doing okay. Things are right. You, you want to change everything. Why? And you see, you have to bring people with you. That was a surprise how much people wanted to do that and how much they wanted to get involved and collaborate with each other to come up with ideas and help develop the strategy. And these were BISA employees or these were your members? A bit of both, actually. What were some of the changes you were making? I assume this is all part of this shift from sort of representing members to representing the industry, or was it some other shifts? Well, I think we've been doing it anyway, to be honest. And the members, I would hope, would see no difference because we're still serving member interests, but doing it by building a better industry. So they very much win from a better industry. If you've got an industry where the majority of people are competent and compliant and can evidence it and are profitable, that's good for everybody. You're not losing work to those people. You're losing work to people who don't take any regard of regulation, who are probably going to grow very quickly, go bust, start again. Those are the people we don't want in the industry because they're not adding value to it. Those who are in the industry openly share non-commercial information about you know technical things. How do you overcome this? Have you got an issue with this? We have a philosophy, you know, if there's a problem, it's better we try and solve it ourselves as an industry rather than have, say, the government, can you solve this? Much better if you do it yourself because it's going to be fit for purpose if you do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's been the most difficult part of this journey, particularly over the last, you know, say six months? I guess management of change is quite scary for everybody at the start, I think, particularly as there isn't a crisis. What are you doing? And it's a bit threatening. It's taken a while for people to get used to that, that this is not a threatening thing. It isn't a binary sum between departments that... If that department wins, you lose. It's not like that. It's this is we're all in the same boat. We're going together. That's difficult, and that's an ongoing thing, though, isn't it? That's always a case. That's just a human condition. That change is, by definition, often scary. What's the impact been on you? How have you been changed? What have you learned? I'm of a certain age. This is the last job I'll ever do. Um, well, I say you never say never, do you? But I intend to ever do, yeah. And the thing that struck me is you never stop learning. One of our subsidiaries, SFG20, has an independent chair, a guy called Henry Rockner, and I'm learning a huge amount from him mm-hmm. about just how you manage the process, how you develop strategy. You're never too old to learn things, and you have to be open to learning, I think. And you occasionally make a wrong turn. You do the wrong thing. And it's really important that you fess up to that straight away and openly to, to everybody. You don't try and hide it. You've got to front up to it, say that's what's happened, and change. Otherwise, you don't get trust. And trust is one of the most important things, I think. If you haven't got trust, you've got no hope. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but a lot of what you've just said there strikes me as being very much embedded in what I know, anyway, about the whole nuclear subs world. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. And that has shaped and formed so much of my thinking from when I first joined Dartmouth around, you know, the, the individual, the team and the purpose. 
And, you know, in a nuclear sub, you come out of refit or after a period of time, you have to go through a thing called a workup. And that works out the crew to make sure that you are, first of all, safe to operate the submarine in all events. And, and I think we've just learned, sadly, over these last couple of weeks, how dangerous submarines can be. And so the first thing they do is take you to sea and they set fire to it. So how do you deal with a fire on its own? And you struggle to deal with that. And then they say, flood. Right. How do you deal with a flood? Right. You do that safely. And then they say, right, you've got a fire and a flood. You add complexity, but they want to make sure that in all scenarios, you are entirely confident that you can keep safe and everybody safe. And you rely and trust upon the professionalism of the crew. It doesn't matter if you're the chef or the captain. If you're by the valve that needs shutting, you shut it and you know how to do it. So that, that's the first bit. But then they say, okay, well, that's not your purpose, though, is it? Just to be out there being safe. You're out there to do a task, to do, you know, go and do some reconnaissance or drop somebody off or intercept an enemy. So then they set fire to your flood, and then they say, and keep fighting. So in business, what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, your first thing in being in business is to make sure you are sustainable and healthy. A quote I read only this week from... Uh, Professor Rebecca Henderson at Harvard Business School saying, you can't use business to do good in the world if you're not doing well financially. Doing well and doing good are intertwined and successful business strategies include both. And my focus in the first five years was, let's make sure we're financially secure because we can't do anything if we're not. Hit your numbers. Hit your numbers because then everybody relaxes. If their numbers are right, you're probably right elsewhere. That's not always true, but you're not far off. And if you do that, then you can go and fulfill your purpose. But if you're always scratching around trying to explain why you've lost a load of money, you've got no hope of fulfilling your purpose because nobody has any trust in you and nobody relaxes. And then they're micromanaging you. And, And I always think that the role for me is to develop with everybody the strategy, develop business plans, and then for the board to monitor that we're doing, we're delivering that strategy. Not, you know, oh, I've had a great idea. We should do this. We should do that. That's not your job. It's to actually make sure that we're delivering the strategy or ask us to change it. But to do that, you have to hit your numbers. Everybody relaxes. It's all good. I like that sort of way of thinking about it. Hit your numbers, relax. Then you can sort of stop worrying about all that stuff and get on to the real thing. Indeed. Beyond hit your numbers, what what advice might you give to a business leader who themselves was sort of wrestling with, you know, what's my own organization's purpose and how do I connect that with the strategy? Be an enabler and I think relax as well. Because if you relax, then people feel more comfortable. We do a 360 check-in process every year of everybody And they do one of me. And I was quite touched to get one of the comments from one of my fellow directors that said, he's reassuring when we need it. I don't want to micromanage you, but I'm there, you know, to reassure you when you think, oh, it's all going wrong. Because everybody has those days, don't they? One thing the Navy also taught me is that you cannot delegate responsibility. You have to stand that in front if it goes wrong. You own it. And you have to very, very much clearly own the thing and be responsible and protect them. You've asked them to do something, then as long as they've done it in good faith and they're not committing fraud or something, you've asked them to do it. It's gone wrong, you own it. And that way you get trust and think you get loyalty and you get buy-in. 
they're really important things. Yeah. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that might be useful to talk about for a minute? Uh, I, I was wondering, is it necessary to be a motivational leader? Or do you need a leader to deliver a purposeful strategy? I, I don't know whether that is true or not. I try to be that. It is important and also to be the face of the organization. And you can actually speak on behalf of the organization and your colleagues and people get what you're trying to get over. I think that's really quite important. And obviously the Navy helps you with that. Those moments of crisis, you can't be saying, would you mind awfully? You can't do a Sergeant Wilson thing. It's You have to be clear about what you want and how you're going to do it. And so that makes things fairly easy. But interestingly, you really kind of give orders in the Navy and that way it's you know, people do it because they understand it's the right thing to do. I guess it's the same in business. You want people to understand that, yeah, it's the right thing to do. We have to do that. I always thought the Navy had made me quite good on my feet, but there are certain situations where you, you're not always great. So I, I did a stand-up comedy course and did stand-up for two years to try and improve that interaction with the audience bit and to take me out of my comfort zone. And it, well, it certainly did that. I mean, standing in front of an audience with their arms folded going, make me laugh. <laughs> it makes you stronger when you come yes, to yes. face somebody else. Well, clearly some of that stuck because I think throughout this, you've done a really great job conveying what you're all about, what you're trying to do. If you don't mind my asking, where'd you do the course? Uh, it's a guy called Logan Murray. It's always in London. Uh -huh. you, you can do the course. It's great fun anyway, even if you don't do it. And there are lots of open mic slots for comedians in London in particular, where you can go and do your five minutes of hell. Every time I stood on the side of the stage saying, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> and most of the time the audience were as well. But there we are. <laughs> I assume that you kind of reconnected to what your own purpose was for being there, for doing that. Definitely. There's one tip that is very useful, and that is in the moment from when they introduce you and you walk from the side of the stage to the mic, do not change your mind. It's like taking a penalty. You know, in a penalty shootout in football, decide what you're going to say and say, don't change your mind. Well, another great bit of advice. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining. It's really been, for me, educational, inspirational, and good fun. Great. So thank you. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Purposeful Strategist.